When I was a, a young boy, I heard this uh, amusing good news, bad news anecdote that I've never forgotten. It goes like this. Two guys are talking. One says to the other, a, a buddy of mine went skydiving last week. Skydiving, that's good. Well, no, that's bad. His parachute didn't open. Ooh, that's bad. Well, no, it's good. He was headed straight toward a haystack on a farmer's field. Oh, that's good. Well, no, it's bad. There was a pitchfork in haystack. Ooh, that's bad. No, no, that's good. He missed the pitchfork. Oh, that's good. Well, no, it's bad. He missed the haystack. <laughs> now, you know, I, I heard that as a boy. I, I've not only never forgotten it, but as I've grown up, I've come to realize it's a pretty accurate picture of real life. Life is kind of this mixed bag of good things and bad things, right? Okay, just about the time you have a good experience on the heels of it, along comes this, this bad experience. It's like we're never completely in the clear. Maybe something bad has happened to you this week. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe your girlfriend broke up with you or you, you totaled your car. Maybe your air conditioner stopped working on one of those really, really hot days. Maybe your dog died or your laptop crashed while you were in the middle of a, an important project. Those, those bad experiences come out of nowhere. I mean, one day the sun's, one moment the sun's shining, and the next moment the storms roll in. And what's worse, sometimes the storms aren't so sudden. Sometimes the storms are continuous. They're ongoing. They're chronic. Maybe some of you have been out of work for a year and a half. Maybe your parents are always fighting. Maybe you're struggling with a same-sex attraction that it just won't go away. Maybe you're trying to get pregnant with no success. Maybe you can't remember your last pain-free day. Maybe somebody you love dearly has been dying slowly. Whether our bad experiences are spontaneous or continuous, we're all going to experience days when life hits the fan. And maybe that's why the oldest book in Scripture, according to some scholars, you know, the very first bit of Scripture that the Holy Spirit of God inspired, the book of Job, was written to teach us how to handle tough times. So if you brought a Bible with you, and I hope you did, would you turn with me to Job Job chapter 1, we're beginning a four-part series, When Life Hits the Fan. If you don't have a Bible or you left it at home, I would encourage you to bring a Bible with you throughout the course of this series and mark it up. You know, jot notes in the margin as we go, so next time you read Job, it'll make sense to you. There's an outline in your program to help you follow as well. I'm going to give you a brief intro in, into Job, then I'm going to sit down and read the entire first chapter of Job to you. So Job's the story of a guy who probably lived around the same time as Abraham, Israel's great patriarch. So we're talking about 2000 B.C. But Job did not live in Israel. Job lived, we're going to learn in the first verse of the first chapter of Job, Job lived east of Israel in a place called Uz. Sounds like something right out of a Dr. Seuss book, doesn't it? Buzz lived in Uz just because, you know? So he lived in us, and we're, we're going to come back to that in just a little bit. The book of Job is about this guy's struggle through a life crisis. It's a really honest book. I mean, we get to hear what Job said behind closed doors. When he was in pain, when he was really frustrated, when disillusionment was setting in. 
There are 42 chapters in the book of, of Job. It's a, it's a long book. 95% of it is poetry. But don't expect it to rhyme as you read it because Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. So why poetry? Well, because poetry is, is the perfect idiom for the topic, struggling with life's hardships. Poetry is colorful. It's emotionally moving. It's intensely personal. It speaks to the heart, not just to the head. So I, I want to read to you the first chapter of Job. I want to invite you to follow along in your Bibles. And as I do so, I want to challenge you to read Job on your own during this four-week series. Because if we're going to cover 42 chapters, you're, you're only going to hear little bits and pieces of Job in the weekend sermons. And so I want to encourage you to read the portion we're about to study, which means you're already behind. All right, because we're going to cover chapters 1 to 3. You go home and read 1 to 3, but prepare for next week. Read chapters 4 through 27. Now, I know that sounds like a lot, but the, the chapters of Job are less than a page apiece. So in a couple of 20-minute segments of time, you could probably read the entire book. And if you read Job ahead of time before you hear the sermons, it's going to mean so much more to you. It's going to be so much more helpful. So let me read rather quickly the entire first chapter. Listen or follow along in your Bible. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. And he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. And early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Yeah, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are, are spread throughout the land. But now do this, God, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself don't lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Well, one day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword. I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. We're not done yet. 
While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them. They're dead. I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground in worship, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. This guy's immediate knee-jerk response to adversity is, it's amazing. He drops to his knees and he worships God. He said, that's incredible. Well, it is incredible, but I, I do want you to know it's not the whole story. So if you're already thinking there's nothing that I can identify with with this guy, he's like a super saint. When life hit the fan, he dropped to his knees and worshiped. Hey, when life hits the fan, I throw up my arms and I wail, why me? Well, j- just so you know, Job expressed the same dismay shortly. In fact, if your Bible's still open to chapter 1, Go over to chapter 3, two chapters over. This is where the poetry begins. This is where Job starts wailing, why, why, why? Which is why I've called today's sermon, Why Me? Look look at verse 11. He said, why? Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? That's depression. Verse 12, why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? Drop down to verse 16, why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child? Verse 20, why is life given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul? Verse 23, why is life given to a man whose way is hidden whom God has hedged in? Why, 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 why? And so if that's your response when life hits the fan, why me? Why this? The first part of Job's story responds to the why me question. So let me give you three responses from these opening three chapters. You can jot these down. If you're tempted to say, why me? Whether it's a small trial or a big trial, here's the first response of Job's story. Well, you have a mistaken worldview. You have a mistaken worldview. How many of you grew up in the Chicago area? Raise your hand. All four campuses. Here we go. Okay, so you know what a Midwestern winter is like, right? You grew up with Midwestern winters. You know how cold it can get around here. But have you ever met someone who recently moved from Tampa or San Diego? Some of you are laughing because you moved from Tampa or San Diego. And the first winter in Chicago comes and they reach into their closet and they, they pull out that wimpy winter coat that they used to use in the place where where they lived where the temperature sometimes dropped to 35 degrees burr and they think that coat is going to protect them from the Chicago cold it's crazy right I mean you you look at them shivering they've never experienced cold so cold that the, the mucus crackles and pops in your nose when you step out and you look at them shivering and you want to say, that, that's it? Like, that's the best you got? You're going to freeze to death. 
Most of us are similarly mistaken when it comes to what we're counting on to insulate us from life's hardships. We see bad things happen to people around us, and we say to ourselves, well, we don't expect that to happen to us. You know, that kind of stuff, you know, we're somehow protected from it. That, that is a mistaken worldview. That's one of the reasons why when life hits the fan, we're, we're liable to wail, why me? Let me point out three things that won't insulate us from life's hardships, as illustrated by Job's story. First, there's righteousness. Our righteousness. Job was a good guy. Now, bad things don't happen to good guys, right? Job was not only a good guy, we would be hard-pressed to find a better guy than Job in all of Scripture outside of the Lord Jesus himself. I mean, go back to chapter 1, middle of verse 1. If you've got your own Bible, underline the four expressions used here to describe Job. See them? Job was blameless. He was upright. He feared God. He shunned evil. Wow. And this fourfold description of Job's righteousness, it's repeated two more times in the book of Job. And the next two times it pops up, it doesn't come out of the mouth of the narrator like it does in verse 1. It comes out of the mouth of God Almighty. God himself considers Job to be a man who's blameless, upright, fears God, shuns evil. And yet his good guy status won't insulate him from life's hardships. Neither will ours. Friends, we live in a fallen world. Sin has wrecked our world. And we've all contributed to the problem. So that the world no longer operates the way God created it originally to operate. And so we shouldn't be surprised when bad things happen. Good buddy of mine, Rob Boo, wrote a book called When the Bottom Drops Out shortly after his wife died of cancer a few years ago. In the opening chapter of Rob's book, he says, we live in a fallen, sinful world, and too many of us expect too much out of life. Our expectations are unrealistic because our view of sin and its pervasive consequences is minimalistic. And as a result, we unintentionally set ourselves up for disappointment. Now, Rob's not being a Debbie Downer. He's, he's just being realistic about living in a fallen world where bad things happen and our righteousness won't insulate us from bad things. Neither will, number two, neither will our riches. Go back to Job chapter 1, verse 3. Job owned a lot of animals. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels. By the way, the camels tell us Job was a successful businessman because camels were used for caravan trade. He had 3,000 camels. He had 500 yoke of oxen, which indicates he had a ginormous amount of farmland because oxen were used to plow the fields. He had 500 donkeys. Hebrew scholars tell us the word donkeys here is in the feminine gender, which means these were donkeys used for breeding. His barns were full of livestock. See, Job was a wealthy dude. Verse 3 concludes by telling us he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. But his riches couldn't insulate him from trouble. And neither can ours. You, you, you got a neighbor who 
who lives in the biggest house on the block, and he's got cancer. You've got a friend who drives the hottest car to school, but his, his parents are splitting up. You know a young mom who has purchased every item that bye-bye baby sells, but her colicky baby hasn't slept in a year, and she's exhausted. You got a boss who has a corner office and an incredible salary package, but he also has a teenage son who won't speak to him, or a wife who's struggling with alcohol. See, riches don't keep life from hitting the fan. Third, religion is not an insulator either. And I'm using religion in a positive way. Sorry, I was looking for an R word here. But I'm, I'm talking now about a genuine relationship with God. I'm talking about a spiritual life that includes Bible reading, going to church, praying, serving the needs of, of the poor on a super second Saturday, participating in community groups, you name it. Job was not only a good guy, Job was, was a godly guy. He was a genuine, fully devoted God follower. And, and this is remarkable considering where Job lived. Let me remind you, he lived in the land of Uz. He, he didn't live in the land where the one true living God was worshipped. He lived in us. He lived in Pagansville. He lived where people could care less about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Job cared. In fact, Job was so conscientious about his spiritual life. Look at verse 5. He not only regularly offered sacrifices for his own sins, he, he offered daily sacrifices for his kids, just in case, just in case they had offended a holy God. He was deeply religious in the best sense of the word, but that did not insulate him from severe trials. Two of the books that I, I read in preparation for this series were written by friends of mine. One of them I already mentioned, Rob Boo. He lives near here. Rob and I have been buddies for years. Uh, Rob wrote When the Bottom Drops Out. Shortly before his wife was diagnosed with cancer, Rob lost his best friend to cancer. His best buddy, a guy whom he vacationed with every year, they co-owned a speedboat together, spent hours on the water skiing together. His best buddy dies several months later. His wife's diagnosed with cancer. Months later, she dies. Within about a year's period, he lost his best friend and his wife. The, the other book I read is a book called Notes from the Valley, written by a college friend of mine, a guy named Andy McQuitty. Andy's got cancer himself. He's got stage four colon cancer. There's about an 8% survival rate of people who have that. Now, here, here's the point in telling you about those two books. Both of my friends are pastors. Now, not just... Christ followers, they lead wonderful churches like Christ's community church, but that didn't insulate them from these devastating trials. Christ followers don't get a free pass from bad stuff, not even if they're pastors. Job was a man of great faith, and yet tragedy struck his life. Don't, don't miss this point. The sky did not fall on Job because he was somehow defective. It didn't fall on Job because he was doing something wrong. He was doing everything right. And you could have personal righteousness. 
You can have well-earned riches. You can have a vibrant, genuine religion, and it won't keep life from hitting the fan. And so, so when we're tempted to say, why me? A better question perhaps would be, why not me, given the fallen world in which I live? Here's a second response to the why me question. It's because you have a diabolical enemy. That's why. Now go back to chapter 1, pick it up at verse 6. It says, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Hey, Satan's a troublemaker, no doubt about it. And he's out to do as much damage in our lives as possible. Why? What did we ever do to him? Listen to how my friend Andy with the stage 4 colon cancer answers that question. He writes, cancer is not my ultimate enemy, Satan is. Cancer is just one of Satan's many tools deployed to bring death. And death is the ultimate expression of Satan's hatred toward human beings who as creatures made in the image of God remind him constantly of God. And so if the devil can't kill God, and he, even he knows he can't do that, then he will settle for maiming and killing people, both physically and spiritually. That's our diabolical enemy. He hates us. Wants to make our lives miserable. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 in the New Testament warns us that, that the devil prowls about like a roaring lion, looking for somebody to devour. The Apostle Paul warns us in Ephesians 6, verse 12. He says, don't you know our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against other people. It's against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Wow. I have a nice day. <laughs> Let me tell you some good news about Satan. Something very important that we learn from the opening chapters of Job's story. Satan is not God's equal. Not even close. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Satan's power is severely limited. Please note from the opening chapter of the story, Satan can't do anything against Job unless God gives him permission to do it. See, God is ultimately in control of Job's life and our lives. And that means, now don't ask me to explain this because I can't explain this, but it means that God is even in charge of the calamities of our lives. Satan may be the one who does the actual dirty work, who wreaks the havoc, but this master of disaster can't do anything that God doesn't allow. I think it was Martin Luther, the 16th century church reformer, who said that the devil is still God's devil. I love that line. See, it means even the devil is on a leash. God's got him on a leash. And I can't explain to you why God ever allows Satan to wreak havoc in people's lives, bring tragedy. But, but one thing I know, that even when he does, God is still sovereign. He's still large and in charge. And when life hits the fan, it's not because Satan has somehow managed to overpower or outmaneuver God. Never. Never. Now, there, there's, there's one more thing about our diabolical enemy that I, I want us to see in Job's story. It's what Bible commentators sometimes refer to as Satan's wager. 
And, and to introduce this part of Job's story, I want to tell you a little anecdote from, from my own life. I've told it before, so apologies to those who had to listen to this before. Uh, back when I was a high school student, I spent my summers working at a Christian camp up in w Wisconsin. And about the only thing you could do if you wanted to date one of the co-workers, or, you know, wasn't much entertainment, you could take her on a walk on a starlit night. So one day this beautiful girl named Marcia showed up as a co-worker of camp, and all the guys began talking about who would be the first to take her on a walk. And being just as cocky as everybody else, I said, I would. And I would not only take her for a walk, I would hold her hand, I would do it within the next several days, or, here was the bet, or I would buy all my buddies milkshakes at the camp canteen. So we were on. So I invited Marcia to go on a walk, and she said, yes. And as we were walking out of the stars, I reached for her hand, and she pulled it away. I tried three times to grab her hand, and she pulled it away. The third time, she looked me in the eye, and she said, I know about your bet. <laughs> and then she added, and I bet against you. By the way, you got to watch what stories you, you tell us, sermon illustrations. Last night at our service, I told this, and a guy came up to me in the Welcome Center afterwards, and he named the camp and the girl I'm talking about. <laughs> like, I'm busted. So. Well, I had to buy a lot of milkshakes. It, it was painful to learn that I had been bet against. If only I'd known. This is the part of the story we're about to repeat here. Job didn't know. He was in the dark about this wager between Satan and God. It caused great pain in his life. Let, let me read it to you again. Verse 9. Satan says, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the lands. But now do this, God, do this. Stretch out your hand and strike everything he has. He'll surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then. Everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself, don't lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of God. Now the good news is, as you know, God won this wager with Satan. And Satan destroyed Job's family, his servants, his possessions, his livelihood. But Job's response was what? Job worshipped God. So God gets the milkshake. Now, Satan wasn't a, a, about to give up, however, in chapter 2, which we don't have time to read, he shows up in heaven a second time. He says, okay, second bet, second bet. He, here's the deal now. You've got to give me permission to afflict him physically. And so God gives Satan permission to afflict Job with sores from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. God gives permission. Satan makes Job very, very sick. But Job maintains his commitment to God. Job allows God to get a second milkshake. Now, I, I apologize for continuing to use the milkshake metaphor here because I, I don't want to trivialize what's on the line when life hits the fan. I mean, this wager between Satan and God, it's serious business. This is not just a bet for a beer as to whose team's going to score the most runs in the next inning. Let, let me tell you what's at stake here, friends. The glory of God is at stake. The glory of God is at stake. You say, what are you talking about? 
Let me ask Johnny Erickson Tata to explain. Johnny's one of my heroes. You know, back when she was a teenager in a diving accident, she was paralyzed. She's been a quadriplegic for 45 years, living in a wheelchair, but that hasn't stopped her. She's an extraordinary Christian leader. She's a, a world-renowned speaker, best-selling author. She's a singer. She's a painter. She paints watercolors with a paintbrush held in her teeth. And a, a few years ago, she was invited to speak at this huge conference. Thousands of people were going to be there, but several months before the conference, she was diagnosed with breast cancer, breast cancer on top of everything else. So she told the organizers of the conference, don't give up on me. I will videotape my presentation, and you could show it to the people who gather. But then the chemo set in, and it so weakened her, she got pneumonia, could hardly breathe. And she was so determined, she videotaped her presentation and sent it anyway. And when I first heard that, I heard it online. You know, I, I downloaded it. In print, I read it just about every year to inspire me afresh. I want to read an extended excerpt from the presentation Johnny made at that conference. I would encourage you to go online and find it for yourself. Read the whole thing. Listen to this. Listen. She says, the spirit world watches you persevere under pressure. And you know what they think? Oh, how great her God must be to inspire such loyalty through such suffering. Wow. This is what it means to glorify God in your afflictions. It is a cosmic responsibility that has out-of-this-world impact. You may think it doesn't amount to much when you hold your tongue from complaining or when you refuse to give in to fear, but when you embrace your Savior in the midst of hardship, I tell you what, it really turns up the applause meter for the Lord Jesus in heaven. The entire universe sees him as worthy. They see him as able. They see him as powerful. And considering how weak and spineless we can be, they're astounded by his mercy and condescending to us. Johnny continues. She says, I can't think of a more noble reason to persevere. Can you? I mean, the trust you show God drives Satan up a wall. When I'm fighting nausea from the chemotherapy and feeling downhearted, I remember who is watching. God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, all his angels, and a world of wicked demons. And you know what? Makes me feel like a warrior, roused by some far-off bugle from a battlefield. I feel like, and maybe you do too occasionally, I feel a little like Job, whom Satan used to taunt God, saying, Job doesn't love you. He just loves your blessings. You're not great enough, God, to get someone to follow you on your own merits. Now listen to her wrap-up. She says, but I want my life to show that God is, God is worth following on his own merits. Nothing deflates the devil more than when God's people choose the Lord over fear, over doubt, over sin, and when through tears you whisper, I choose you, Lord. I prefer you, Lord. I yield. I submit. I respond to you, Lord. I bow to you. That is awesome stuff. Are you tempted to wail? Why me? When life hits 
the fan. Job's story teaches, number one, you have a mistaken worldview. Why not you? You live in a fallen world. And, and secondly, you, you have a dia diabolical enemy. When you face trials, whether they're small trials in the course of a day or medium-sized or large trials, don't let your diabolical enemy win. Pick up a stick and poke him in the eye. Give glory to God. Right? Here's the third lesson we learned from Job. You guys can clap. That's good. Wow. Number three, you're on the path to maturity. When, when life hits the fan, you, you're on the path to maturity. Now, I don't have much time to develop this third and final point, but let, let me just say for starters that you are not. You, you are not on the path to maturity until you are on the path period. What path am I talking about? I'm talking about the path to a relationship with God. Now, fortunately for Job, he, he had a strong relationship with God that's evident before tragedy struck his life. See, the time to begin a, a relationship with God is not when life hits the fan. That's too late. You're going to be so disoriented at that point. Your, your world is going to be spinning out of control. You're going to have a very hard time connecting with God if you have been giving him minimal time and attention up to that point in your life. See, now, today is the time to draw near to God before life hits the fan. How do you do that? Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, he said, I am the way the truth and the life, and no one comes to God. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, Jesus is the door to a relationship with God. Surrender to Jesus is how this relationship begins. If you've never done that, never consciously, never deliberately done it, never made the decision that the people you saw baptizing, baptized today have made for themselves, you, know, you need to come to the place, maybe today, Maybe today when you bow your knee before God Almighty and you say to Jesus Christ, his son, I surrender my life to you. I recognize that when you died on the cross, you died to pay sin's penalty. Sin's penalty is death. When we sin against God, we unplug from the giver of life. The consequence is death. Jesus came to take our death, to taste death in your place. And so you have to humbly come before him and say, yes, you did it for me. I recognize that. I want you to forgive my sins. And I don't want to go back to my sins. I want you to become the king of my life. I want you to rule over my life. You know, if you've never done that, do it before life hits the fan. Do it today. You know, the best place to do it, is in one of the welcome centers at one of our four campuses. Every year, hundreds of people, I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of people make the decision in one of our welcome centers to surrender their lives to Christ. So stop back there. Get a next steps packet that you heard about probably during the announcement time of our service today. So, so you'll be started on a relationship with God before life hits the fan. Okay, once we've surrendered our life to Christ... We have taken the first step. We've taken the first step on this path to maturity. And then, 
And then when life hits the fan, when we go through hard times, small, medium, or large hard times, we have the opportunity to make huge progress down that path. Or we can regress. Or we can move backwards. See, God's waiting. God is waiting to see what we will do. In fact, that's one of the ironies of hard times. We tend to think that we're the ones who are waiting. You know, we're praying. So we're kind of waiting for God to show up and do something. And the irony is, listen, God is waiting for you to show up and do something. My friend Andy with the stage four colon cancer, listen to what he writes in this regard. He says, here's the greatest mystery of waiting. It's really God who's doing it. He's waiting for us to learn, to grow, to trust, to change and become the people he wants us to be. Our Lord's most famous picture of God's love is of a father in front of his house, eyes fixed on the horizon, waiting for his foolish son to come home. In the story of the prodigal son, he says each of us in his or her own way is that son or daughter. We sojourn in the far country, peeved that God is making us wait when all the time it's God that's waiting for us. What a good reminder. The next time life hits the fan for us, whether it's a small, I'm gridlocked in traffic and late for work, or it's a large, my house just burned down and destroyed everything I own, God is waiting for me. He's waiting for me to take a few steps down the path to maturity. So let me briefly describe, and I'll close with this, three steps that I observe and the opening chapters of Job's story, if you read it this week, read chapters 1 to 3, I think you'll see these three steps. You know, first step is to accept your situation as coming from God's hand. Accept your situation from, as coming from God's hand. Even though it was Satan in Job's case who wreaked the havoc. It was Satan who destroyed his family, his servants, his possessions, his livelihood. You come to the end of chapter 1 and Job says, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. He knows who's in control. And he's going to accept the situation as coming from God's hand. My friend Rob, who lost his wife to cancer, he writes in his book, When the Bottom Drops Out, he says, There was a time when I realized I needed to move from just praying for Carol's healing and start praying for my acceptance. I needed to move from praying, God, make her better, make her better, make her better, to start praying, God, give me the grace to accept this. You know, how, how different from a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon I saw years ago. Calvin is standing there with his sled. It's the first day of winter, but there's, there's no snow. And so he looks at the heavens and he says, Okay, God, time for snow. One, two, three, snow. There's no snow. So he tries it again, a little louder. Tries it a third time, still no snow. Finally, he throws up his arms and he says, What's wrong with you, God? You want me to become an atheist? When the hard times hit, do you become demanding, God, do this, or I might stop believing in you? we got to move from demanding to accepting. we got to move from demanding that God will do something to accepting the situation he's allowed in our lives. Here's a, here's a second lesson I learned. 
from Job's story in the opening chapters. Seek God's presence in your loneliness. Seek God's presence. Now, we didn't read chapter 2, but go home and read it. Job's wife gives him some awful advice. You know, too bad they carried off his kids and not his wife. <laughs> Can't believe I said that. It's, it's not in my notes, honest. <laughs> it's not. And then, then his three best friends arrive on the scene, and they have nothing to say. Now, initially, nothing's good, you know, just comfort, don't say stupid stuff. But seven days they sat in his presence and said nothing. Now, that wouldn't freak you out if three friends came and didn't say a thing for seven days. And when you go through tough times, you're going to experience disappointment with other people. They either say nothing, nothing helpful, or they say something stupid or hurtful, whatever. And I'd say this is your opportunity to lean into God. Make God your best friend. Psalm 34 verse 18 says, He is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. You know, the tendency will, will be to push God away. Don't push God away. Draw near. You know, force yourself to pick up your Bible every day and read, even if it's just a few paragraphs. Pray. And if you can't pray out loud extemporaneously, take out a piece of paper and a pen and write out a paragraph of prayer to God if that helps. Hang out with God's people. Draft behind their faith. This is the time to seek God's presence. And third lesson that we learn in the opening chapters is just tell God how you're feeling. Now, if you start reading Job this week, especially if you get into chapters 4 through 27, which I hope you'll read, you will be amazed at some of the things Job says. Or I should say, some of the things Job screams at God. And you know what? God's big enough to take it. God is big enough to take it. Don't bottle it up. Now, you don't want to stay stuck at the screaming stage. But God can take it. There are 150 psalms in the Old Testament book of Psalms. Bible scholars tell us that nearly half of them, 73 out of 150 are laments. That means they are cries of despair. They are exclamations of anger over how unfair life is. Isn't it interesting that God has given us these words? Why me? Here's God's answer. First, you have a mistaken worldview, okay? You've forgotten that you live in a fallen world where bad things happen. Why not you? Second, you have a diabolical enemy who's out to get you. The wager has been placed. You want to do something in response, pick up the stick, Poke him in the eye by giving glory to God. And third, you're on the path to maturity. You're going to move forward or you're going to slide back. It's your decision. 